1: Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and happy holidays. Welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, 96.5 TIC FM and Light 100.5 WRCH. Aaron Kupek with you this Sunday morning. This morning, an encore broadcast of some of our conversations with former University of Hartford archaeologist Richard Freund, who has joined us for years on the Sunday before Christmas to talk about the foundations of the holiday. It's a tradition we began here with Sam Gingerella, the longtime host of the program. We lost Sam in 2017, and Dr. Freund has moved on to Christopher Newport University in Virginia. But now some of our conversations over the past two years with Dr. Freund, a prominent archaeologist, historian, and explore.
0: You know, Sam uh, was very passionate about this show. Every year, he would call me two, three months in advance, and he says, you, you remember, we're going to do the Christmas show. And every year, uh, I would come and I would talk to him, at the end of the show, I'd always say to him, you know, Sam, I do take volunteers. You can come with me to Israel, to Greece, to Spain. And he'd say, oh, I wish, I wish. So one of the things that I... The, as we remember, Sam, this uh, this day as we uh, talk about uh, these excavations, is we should always say to ourselves, there is never a good time, okay? You should always think about trying to do these kinds of things because Sam really wanted to do this, and I wish he had done it. It would really have fulfilled a, a big circle for him.
1: And one of the things he was always interested in were the roots of Christmas and how they relate to Judaism.
0: Right. Right. I, uh, every year we would have the same discussion. He would ask me, uh, and I think it, it is a, an important question. Where is it that Christmas comes from? Is there some kind of connection between uh, the Jewish roots of, uh, of Christmas? And I always would tell Sam that there was a unique understanding that I can give him about the Christmas. And that was that it is an unusual holiday that uh, starts in the evening. Christmas starts in the evening before the day. Now, that in itself is one of the first connections to Jewish holidays. Jew- all Jewish holidays start in the evening and then continue through the next day. But the second thing, which was very important, is there was never in any early uh, Christian uh calendar the idea that uh, Jesus was born uh in in the wintertime, in December. So how did it get located onto this very specific date of the 24th into the 25th? And it seems that the easiest connection is through the holiday of Hanukkah. Hanukkah, which is the holiday of dedication of the temple, starts on the 25th day, actually in the 24th day, in the evening of the lunar month of Kislev. So the lunar month is uh, actually different than the solar month. But the fact that it starts on the 24th and goes, it starts on the 25th, it really does connect us immediately with the numbering of the day. Second thing is the name of the holiday of Hanukkah is the holiday of lights. Everyone who has ever read the Christmas story and ever tried to figure out what is the deal with the lights that everybody has on their houses? Where does that come from in Christianity? That comes from a very, very, very arbitrary use of the idea that the, whoa, the lights that directed the magi into, so therefore we're in the middle of winter. It's good to have nice lights. But really, we think that the original purpose was that this was from the holiday of lights, the holiday of lights, which was Hanukkah the lighting of the candles that were for the rededication of the temple. And finally, the interesting thing about this uh, uh, this holiday is that Jesus would never have been able in swaddling cloth to have been outside in a cave near Bethlehem in this time of the year. Uh, this time of the year near Jerusalem and Bethlehem— are very cold with snowing. So the idea that the, the people would have been visiting and going and, and this was the time of the, the tax collection. That's why they went down to Bethlehem because they really live in Nazareth. Uh, all of this is connected to a very specific transformation, a morphing, if you will, of a holiday from Judaism that got new meaning in Christianity but only 3 or 4 centuries after Jesus was no longer walking the face of the earth.
1: Bring us back to the the first Christmas. What is supported by science and the artifacts and and what isn't?
0: You know, uh, I have to tell you that a lot of people for a, a good long time have questioned the some of the earliest narratives we have. You know, uh, why was what was Jesus of Nazareth Uh, doing in Bethlehem for his birth. I mean, he's from Nazareth. Why is he going to Bethlehem, which is hundreds of miles away? And, you know, these kinds of things, we've now started to to reveal the reasons for a lot of these things uh, through archaeology. So now we know that uh, there was a census uh, that was uh, the Roman census that took place uh usually in the springtime not necessarily in december uh when it was very cold and the roads were were inundated but uh there was a census every year and the family of of, of uh mary and joseph uh was probably from uh judea in bethlehem in in the south of the country and they may have been living in nazareth because there's a lot of good jobs there and they went back to their original town for the census and of course uh, she has, gives birth to Jesus. The story of uh, uh, Christmas is is uh, very complicated. Also, I mean, being born in uh, on December twenty fifth is uh, is a very very complicated thing. Since uh, if you're in um, uh, a manger, you're going to be very cold in 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 Judea at, at that time period. But um, What's more important is the, some elements like the, the Annunciation, which takes place six months before, nine months before, where she's, um, being told by the angel Gabriel that, uh, Mary is going to have this child, Jesus. Uh, so the question is, do we have any evidence of the, the Holy Family being in a place like Nazareth in this time period? And now we have, more evidence than we had before uh, there was for a, a long time a lot of people said that there was very little evidence of um, uh, a settlement in this city of Nazareth which is modern-day Israel in the north in Galilee and uh, recently we've had excavations of the Mar- Mary's well which we also did and uh, we've discovered that the, these this public well has been there for thousands of years and in the well, were actually artifacts. And the artifacts tell us that there were people there because we find coins and we find ceramics and we find uh, glass and things that can be very specifically dated to the first century. So in general, archeology span is doing a pretty good job in developing this whole storyline of what is accurate in the Gospels about uh, the story of Christmas.
1: Following Christmas, of course, is Three Kings Day. What evidence uh, is there to suggest uh, that occurred?
0: Each one of these uh, elements are obviously elements that were added to the, uh, the church calendar over years. So I'm not going to be <laughs> taking each element in, in the church calendar. It, it is uh, What is very interesting, for example, is a lot of people think that the, the original symbol – of christianity everybody thinks it's a cross and this is the cross upon which jesus was crucified in fact the earliest archaeological evidence of uh... christianity um, the symbols of christianity was the fish because this is a, a symbol of the profession of the apostles that jesus was recruiting at the sea of galilee they were fishermen and a lot of people think that uh... That, that fish uh, also may actually give us the original meaning of the cross. We look at the cross, and we associate it, of course, with the crucifixion. But archaeological evidence from early Christianity and from this 1st and 2nd century and into the 3rd century context um, suggested that original cross may not be a cross at all. It may actually be an anchor. And some of the earliest crosses that are being used by christians are not just crosses that look like crucifixes meaning the place where jesus died but rather are anchors and they have a little bottom to the to the cross that sort of dropped off other people's uh, renderings of the cross so this is the beauty of archaeology because what it provides us is a totally different resource for understanding the origins of uh, religion and history and that's what's great about it from year to year i never know what we're going to discover you know the 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 one thing that we can say about uh... uh christmas is that the first calendar that was developed by uh, the new uh, byzantine um, uh, government was only in the fourth century and the symbols of christianity were totally changed by the fourth century in the 1st century and in the 2nd century, the symbols of Christianity were the fish. The, this was a, a symbol of the uh, occupation of the apostles. By the 4th century, though, they totally changed it and they made it into the, the crucifix. This idea of the, the uh, crucifixion would have been absolutely incomprehensible to 1st and 2nd century Christians. So you can see how Christianity built itself in the 4th century, and that's why Christmas occupies such an important place in this new Christianity that develops uh, in the Byzantine Empire. You have
1: also been working at the Church of the Annunciation in Nazareth. Right.
0: And I, I have to say, this is Sam. Sam and I had this conversation many— I was working 15 years on this project, and what we discovered was— uh, in the Greek Orthodox Church of the Annunciation—by the way, there are two churches of the Annunciation in, um, in Nazareth. For those of you who uh, are wondering what the Church of the Annunciation tradition is, this is where Mary, mother of Jesus, has this announcement of the birth of Jesus in Nazareth. Now, his mother, uh, Jesus' mother and father, uh, Joseph and Mary, were from Nazareth. And so we always call him Jesus of Nazareth. Well, the event, which was the announcement of the birth of Jesus, uh, took place in Nazareth. By the way, six months before, it had to be six months before um, uh, Christmas. So that we, you know, we we're talking about uh, the, the idea of the way they understood the gestation period So Jesus is born in Nazareth, lives in Nazareth until, of course, he ends his days in Jerusalem. But the Church of the Annunciation is built by the Greek Orthodox on top of a fountain, an area where there's water. Uh, Why is that so important? Because it says in, not in the canonical uh, New Testament, but in the writings written by early Christians, that it took. Place, the announcement of the birth of Jesus took place with Mary at the well. And the angel Gabriel came to her and said, You will have a child, and he will be Jesus. He will be the Messiah. So we were excavating around the church, and again, using non invasive means, because we don't want to destroy a 1,500 year old church. And uh, I said to the bishop, I said, you know, you have something about six feet below the present church. If you'd like, we can excavate that. And, of course, we don't want to rip up a 1,500-year-old church. We started excavations in the back, and we found the original church floor that goes back literally to the time when first churches were being built in Israel um, by Queen Helena the mother of Constantine the Great. And to find the original floor of this original church in Nazareth uh, is something near spectacular because the church has been destroyed multiple times, rebuilt multiple times. And down the street from the Greek Orthodox Church is the basilica where the house of Mary and Joseph is inside of the roman catholic church of the annunciation so right now after working 15 years in 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 nazareth they're going to be reconstructing the original floor area of this original church of uh, the church in the annunciation so in one summer i got to do atlantis i got to do the holocaust and the origins of Christianity and
1: archaeology. You are listening to Face Connecticut, an Encore edition with Dr. Richard Freund, former University of Hartford archaeologist, now leader of the Judaic Studies program at Christopher Newport University in Newport News, Virginia.
0: Tell us the story of Matilda Olkin. Oh, and and, you know, uh, one of the things that the University of Hartford has become very well known for is that we take students into the field every summer, uh, sometimes in the winter, and we, we do excavations. So last year, uh, the, last year, 2018, summer, we had this uh, opportunity to go, and, uh, we went back to Lithuania. We're excavating the great synagogue of Lithuania, and a group from northern Lithuania came to us and said, We have this very famous Jewish poet who was murdered by the Nazis. And we'd like to find where she's buried. We have eyewitnesses. Can you help us? So we've we've sort of uh, made this a cause celeb that we're able to go into the field using ground penetrating radar. If we have eyewitnesses, we usually we usually use, uh, for example, also photographs we have uh, captured uh, Nazi photograph flyovers of most of the areas of of Lithu- places like Lithuania, and we then look to see if we can find it lost uh, synagogues, lost cemeteries, and in this case, uh, mass burials. Now, Matilda Olkin was the equivalent of the Anne Frank of Lithuania. She wrote, she was already a teenager, and she was murdered before she was 20 years old in the field, in the forest. And her diaries only came, were discovered in the last few years. And they were discovered under the great altar of a church where she lived. One of the uh, local Roman Catholic priests saved her diaries, hid them underneath the altar, and now they were being translated. And her poetry is the equivalent of one of the great poets that we know. And Lithuanians are very, very much interested in her poetry. She wrote in Lithuanian. But she is, in that sense, the um, the quintessential figure for Lithuanians to understand the relationship between the Holocaust and their own national identity. So we went out this past summer with the eyewitnesses and we found her mass burial where she was uh, buried. Now, you know, I'll tell you, Anne Frank, um, who was a great diarist, younger, we don't know where she's buried. She died in, in an extermination camp and no one knows where she is. But to find uh, Matilda Olkin uh, gave my students a great sense that they can go out and do something and uh, make a positive contribution towards the understanding of the Holocaust. And in this case, uh, this is – they're making a documentary at the University of Hartford. Students at the University of Hartford are making a documentary about her. And um, it really is a, um, uh, a great use of how to educate people about how to use geoscience, because we're not digging up Matilda Olkin. We're marking her grave. So we're using geoscience, we're using archaeology, we're using history together to help educate students and I think the public about all these issues.
1: So many of your discoveries have been made using ground penetrating radar. That has really been a game changer, hasn't it?
0: Yeah. Well, we we use two techniques, um uh, ground penetrating radar and electrical resistivity tomography. That basically gives us an MRI of the ground. And so we can then decide what's there before sticking a spade into the earth. And that's been a game changer for Uh, A lot of different archaeology, because I hate to tell you the dirty secret of archaeology is, archaeology is destructive. It's expensive. It's labor intensive. It's pretty ineffective. And it sometimes is insensitive. In the case of the, the Holocaust, it's just impossible to really... Uh, excavate most of these sites. We we have to just find them, mark them, and so there's no development going on. But even in the case of the Church of the Annunciation, we don't want to rip up the floor of the Church of the Annunciation. We want to know where we can excavate and find the things without destroying uh, those things that are sacred, important to the people that are there. So we can work with ground-penetrating radar in someone's business, office, house, uh, find what's there, tell them what's there, excavate in, in a pinpoint fashion, and then uh, extract artifacts and then close it up so people can go on with their business. And that's a big difference than the way archaeology was done 50 years ago. And you're going to be using this radar through ice. Oh, yes. this In January, I'm going back to Lithuania to find a ghost shtetl a missing settlement that was inundated after the war by the Soviets, an entire Jewish village. After the people were murdered, the the Soviets decided after the war that they needed to create a dam. They created the dam and they inundated the um, whole village. It's called Romsiskis. And it's on the the campus of the Living Museum of Lithuania, the Williamsburg of Lithuania. And we're going to go back and we're going to see this Winter, whether it's there, if it is there, we're going to go back with divers to see what can be excavated out of that uh, village.
1: When do you make the decision to go from the non-invasive archaeology to actually excavating?
0: Well, for example, I mean, we worked at this great synagogue of um, of Vilna for three years uh, just doing – Uh, non-invasive materials and then doing some pinpoint archaeology and then we decided that we we needed to do full-scale excavations of the place. There are no people buried there. It is just uh, the great synagogue of Vilna. It was for Jews the equivalent of the Vatican. It was the size of two football fields and it was buried underneath an elementary school in downtown Vilnius in Lithuania. So you know, we worked with the the municipality, with the government. They allowed us to uh, uh, do some small excavation. But after we took out a 100,000 artifacts, they decided to close the school. And now we're excavating the entire great synagogue. So sometimes you start small, you do non-invasive, and it does lead to bigger things. We started out non-invasively at the uh, Church of the Annunciation. And what it led to was full scale excavations, and now they're building a church on top of our excavations, and they put a glass floor on top of our excavations, so people who come into this new Church of the Annunciation will be able to see what it is that we've excavated, to see the original church.
1: What level of interest among today's college students is there in archaeology? Would you say it's
0: growing or? Yeah, you know, I have to say, I've been teaching for 35 years, uh, and I'm, I take students out to the field. A lot of people are very down on millennials, and they're very down on uh, Generation Z because they don't, they say, ah, they don't want to read books. But I ha- can say, having done this now for 35 years, that this is the best generation of students in the field that I've ever had. When you take them out to the field where they can smell it, they can taste it, they can experience it, this is what millennials wanna do. They don't wanna read about it in a book, they wanna discover it for themselves. And they are the best, the most curious generation of students that I've had. Then you can take them back to the classroom afterwards and they're very interested about reading about it. But you first gotta take them by the hand into the field where they can experience it for themselves. And so I got great hopes because of that.
1: He is Dr. Richard Freund, archaeologist, historian, and explorer, formerly at the University of Hartford, now with Christopher Newport University in Virginia. Our thanks to Dr. Freund and thank you for listening to Face Connecticut. Enjoy the balance of your weekend and Merry Christmas. Please join us again next week. I'm Aaron Kupek. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio.